Uh, we're going to open God's word now. We're going to be in Hebrews 12, 1 through 13. I'm going to invite Gretchen up as we open God's word together. Again, we'll be in Hebrews 12, 1 through 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Thank you, Gretchen, for reading. To begin our time today, I want you to imagine a few scenarios with me. Uh, they're hypothetical, but uh, maybe not really because uh, likely you'll identify either with some of the scenarios or you'll have friends, people that are very close to you, they would identify well with the scenarios. Imagine with me um, a friend of yours is facing some serious hostility, maybe from family or maybe from people that they work with. Imagine he won't advance because of this hostility in a career. He continually kind of gets like negative feedback and He's trying to do the right thing, but everything seems to be ramping up. He even could lose his job, not because he's not performing, but because uh, there's a hostility against him, maybe even particularly for his faith. Or imagine another scenario with me. Imagine a friend who she's just juggling a whole lot and like it's a ton of work to keep a thousand trains moving on time. And she feels responsibility in maybe vocation and calling in her life and family, maybe kids, and maybe parents, maybe friends, neighbors. She's somewhat of the glue that holds things together, but she's exhausted. And maybe anxiety, which has always been a challenge, 
is not just creeping in, but it's just like flooding in. It's hard for her to keep her head on straight, but she has to. And some of this is beginning to make her feel pretty isolated. Like, am I alone? Is the stress and the anxiety making me more alone? And maybe another scenario to imagine would be a set of friends, maybe even a couple, maybe an individual. It seems like they have just faced hard circumstance after hard circumstance after hard circumstance. So just one of those things would be enough to really cause a lot of pain. But the fact that it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And as you begin to pray for them and think about them, you know they have to be wrestling with what's going on. You know they have to be wrestling like, does God love me? I mean, we all know he does, but does he really? They're beginning to unpack and maybe even beginning to doubt some of that. Is there anything that Gretchen read a moment ago? Here's the connection I want to ask and I I want you to make. Is there anything that she read a moment ago, which is God's word, which comes from 2,000 years ago, that actually gives any help in that scenario, in those scenarios? I mean, it's ancient wisdom, and and we we may sense a disconnect, because I think we often forget that the New Testament, the the books they were reading, including Hebrews that was read today, is written not to people who have everything going well, like everything just seems to be falling in place, everything seems to be lining up, and everything's just wonderful. Most of the New Testament is written to people who actually are weary and tired and facing hostility and have to deal with all sorts of pressure, even from culture, from society, from life. And they're having to deal with that pressure, which is why when we go to the New Testament, we're not just reading instruction for people that have their act together. We're reading things that are helping people that seem to be under an unbearable load. And I'm confident that God has help for every scenario that we just mentioned, which again is hypothetical, but not really, right? I know God has help. I'm confident that God is not interested in you or me going on some sort of pathetic wild goose chase trying to find that help. Playing some sort of game with us. But I actually want you to see from this passage that there are sources and avenues of help. The word I want to use, and it's somewhat of a word picture, is like outlets for help because we know we plug things into outlets. And I want you to consider like there are outlets of help for you today. There are avenues of help. And, and maybe one of these is going to be more helpful to you than the other. But I, I, find it, I find five, you might find more in Hebrews 12 that are outlets, that are sources of help and sources of hope for us that we can plug into in our time of need. Look at verse one, because I find an outlet there for help, that we can receive God's grace and receive his help. Verse one says there, and Gretchen read it a moment ago, but, but these, are, these verses are so good and so powerful. I want us to read it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, then let us also lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. 
So outlet number one, I think would be a cloud of witnesses. A cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? It's a cloud which, okay, in that time period, a cloud meant to say just a whole lot. Like, so a great cloud, a lot of people, a host. And it's not kind of out of the question to picture a stadium, a full stadium of people. So you're kind of surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. And what do they bear witness to? They're not just spectators. They're witnesses. They're witnesses who can attest to God being faithful. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 just lays the foundation and goes again and again. We, we spent three weeks looking at Hebrews 11. And what we discovered in Hebrews 11 is there was name after name after name after name of witnesses that would say, God is faithful. He can be trusted. They trusted in God. And so can you. And I think joining those named individuals is everybody else that is running this race and can attest to God being faithful, surrounded by a greater cloud of witnesses. And that is meant to push us. You could kind of misread the picture. It's not even so much about, although it's, it's like a curiosity to wonder, I wonder people in heaven, can they see us and all that? I mean, that is an interesting question. Actually, though, what this passage is saying is not so much, I wonder if they're looking at us, as much as we're in the stadium looking at them, going, look at how they've walked with God. Look at how they've trusted. Look at how they've walked by faith and exercised their faith. And as they've walked that path, it's almost like you're in a locker room with the, the coach that is going like, remember like, when you put on that jersey, remember the history and the tradition, and this is the way we, I mean, it's in some ways motivational to say there's a history that predates you. There's witnesses who have gone before you, and now it's your turn. A motivation, a motivation to lay aside the weight or the hindrance, any impediment, which doesn't necessarily mean bad things. Actually, sometimes things that would cause us like to slow down in our pursuit of Jesus would be even Good things, maybe habits, ambitions, desires, pursuits, hobbies, friendships, which in and of themselves aren't bad at all, but become the weight that actually distracts and moves our attention away from Jesus. So the motivation is we see people who have run the race well, we lay aside the, the weight, the hindrance, any impediment, any obstacle. And we certainly lay aside Sin, sin which clings so close. So there are sin actually that we kind of have this love-hate relationship. We hate it because we know what it does to us and yet it clings so closely we actually don't want to do the hard work of getting it out of our lives. Because of the patterns of life, it's just become comfortable to live with it and to make our peace with it instead of to kill it and remove it from our lives. But wait a minute, we have a, a cloud of witnesses an outlet of God's grace to us so that we would run with, we'd run, and it says run with endurance. So kind of the name of this race is stamina, not speed. It's like, are you, are you going to quit or are you going to endure? Run with endurance. Decide in your heart that there is this cloud of witnesses. Let that be motivation to you. I wonder if you would consider the opposite of what it would mean if there was no cloud of witnesses. 
no history that predated you, no other people that have run this race, nobody who knows exactly what you're going through, nobody else who's had to rely on the Lord for things that they don't see, for help that has not yet arrived. I mean, that would be a terrible position, just us slugging it out, not connected to anything greater, anything bigger. And God loves you too much to leave you in that position, which is why your attention is called to a cloud of witnesses as an outlet for you not to give up. We're linked with people who've gone before. We're connected to them in some way. They ran the race with endurance. So church, here we are saying like, let's do that as well. There's another outlet here and it's in verse two. So I love verse two, it just starts off like looking to Jesus. So we're running the race with endurance looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we sang about a moment ago, and I was so glad Caleb picked the song King of Kings because this is exactly what we're, he is seated at the right hand of God after enduring the cross, despising the shame. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, implying, though, that he shed his blood for you. So again, another simple outlet is we look to Jesus. Yes, we have a cloud of witnesses, but here the the attention gets like really, really focused, and we are meant to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus' example. I mean, do you hear that kind of just pressing and pressing and pressing? impressing on our hearts. Like, think about what he went through. And one of the ways you are going to not give up this week, this month, this year, is recognizing, look at what he went through. And I'm walking in his steps. And so I'm going to keep following. I'm going to deal with, like, my temptation to quit or to, like, lose confidence, to lose heart by comparing my situation with his. And then you realize, well, there's not. There's not a comparison here. The implied message is not like you become, and we heard this in a baptism testimony, like the idea, and it's an understandable idea that, you know, you kind of trust in Jesus and then life goes really well. And and yet the reality is so far from that, there's a, the expectation is no, it is going to be tough. It is going to be a struggle. You are going to have difficult times ahead, but look to your example. He faced hostility. He faced hostility with words. He faced hostility in actions, and he did not give up. He endured the cross. The cross which would be, I can't imagine, a more shameful death in that culture. And I also can't imagine too many that would be more prolonged. If you've read of the agonies of a cross, of a crucifixion. So it's an intentional picture to put our eyes, to put our attention, to regularly think about Jesus on the cross. And then to match up whatever we feel like is just very, very painful. It's not to minimize any of that, but it is to put it into comparison and say, here's where you have to focus because he is your example. But not only is he our example, when we look to Jesus, we're not only looking at an example, we also look to him because he is our strength. He is our empowerment, not just our example. What do I mean by that? What do I mean that he is our empowerment? 
I mean that he has changed things for us. So he's not merely an example to follow, but he's changed things. So it says, for the joy that was set before him. And you know what? Part of that joy is for those that are believers, for those that have put their trust in Jesus. Part of the joy for him was that I would stand here being able to have a clear conscience before Jesus, not having guilt attached to me. But if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So I don't have to worry about somewhere in, you know, a million years into eternity, them discovering one sin that I did not. This is about forgiveness. This is about the joy that Jesus had in giving Curtis and giving you and giving you and giving those that will trust in Jesus, giving us the confidence that we have had our sins forgiven and our conscience cleaned. This is the joy that Jesus got from knowing what he was doing even as he was suffering was opening wide you to be able to pray, you to be able to take the sins that you confessed maybe a moment ago, you to take those worries and those burdens and opening wide access to God. This is about that. This is about the power that that brings. I love that it says in this passage, we look to Jesus who is the, who is the author or the founder, other translations say the pioneer, and the perfecter or the finisher or the completer of our faith. It's a phrase that maybe you've learned and heard like the author and finisher of our faith or the, the author or the founder and the perfecter, but don't rush by that too quickly. It does mean your faith, my faith depends on Jesus from beginning to end. It means that Jesus is the author, the source, the pioneer. He opened up the way of trusting in God. He opened up that way. He's the founder, the author, the pioneer. And then one day we're going to reach the completion. And you know, it will still be about him bringing it all to completion. So when we take our last breath here, or when we meet Jesus, when he comes back for us, what will bring us all the way home there is not him getting us a good start and then shoving us and saying, good luck, I got you off to a good start, but him walking us all the way through from beginning to end. Our faith will rest in Jesus. He's the one who continues to cause us to have confidence in God, which is said, look to Jesus. That's why it's like looking to Jesus. He's our source. He's our help. One takeaway in this is one of the things Christians ought to do for each other is push each other to regularly look to Jesus. Which, if you were to take all things aside and say, you know what you need to do to survive life is you need to look at a person that lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine. I mean, all things being equal, that doesn't seem like it would be very helpful unless you realize who exactly we're talking about. And this man who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago is God in flesh. This one whose influence is so great, his heart is so kind, his teaching is so critical, his work on the cross is alive and transformative, which means we push each other to look to Jesus, to focus our attention on him. I do fear at times that may sound simplistic, like that's the Sunday school answer, like literally, quite literally, the Sunday school answer to everything is Jesus, of course. And yet, I think it's time we hear it again because I am positive there were moments this past week 
where I got into a situation and I was captain problem solver in the moment and the furthest thing on my mind was, I wonder what Jesus has in store here. Maybe my first thought was, I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. This is a mess. I don't really want to mess with this. But could it be that when I fix my eyes, when I focus my attention, when I intentionally bring Jesus to mind, I'm reminded, oh, he wants something from me. He wants something for me. He is doing something in me. He's promised not to leave me. He's with me. He is on my side. He will strengthen me looking to Jesus. Don't write him out of the equation too soon. I can't imagine there will ever be a time where it's like, yeah, I got the Jesus stuff, but now I'm, I mean, are we really going to ever move on from the one who gives us the strength? Verse 5 gives us another outlet in addition to looking to Jesus. It raises a question. Have you forgotten the exhortation or this word of courage which is going to fill your heart with confidence? Have you forgotten the word, this exhortation that addresses you as sons? It's a word from Proverbs 3. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, because for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? And if you're without discipline in which all have participated, well, then you're illegitimate children. You're not really sons. There's another outlet of help here. And that outlet is knowing we are being treated as we are our father's children. And that, that means we have to talk about some things. One thing you read, even as I was reading the verses again, is you hear the word son, son, son. You're, you're as sons. God is, the father is treating you as sons which was just a cultural expression of that time period because sons inherited things from their fathers. So you certainly can import sons and daughters, but I think what the writer is making sure we don't miss is like there's a special relationship of all this inheritance that the father has and know that when the father is, is even disciplining you, he is disciplining you as his children. And that word discipline, we also probably need to take stock of that. What does it mean that God disciplines Lots of different ways we use the word discipline. I mean, there's certainly academic disciplines. There also is the discipline that I was very familiar with growing up. So when I would not obey my parents, when I would uh, not obey in school, when I would, then I would get discipline, which always seemed like code word for punishment or correction or we're going to help, you know, get this out of you so that you make better decisions the next time, correction of behavior. So that's discipline. But there's another discipline also, right? There's the discipline that says, I'm going to train, I'm going to discipline myself for a goal. There's something that I want, and so I'm going to say no or say yes to some things that may be hard because I am disciplined. And I think the word discipline here has a lot of connotations of like this instruction, this upbringing, this training. The Greek word there would be paideia. It's like a, a special kind of education, formative instruction, trying to help us, trying to, yes, it certainly involves correction or even punishment, but it's more than just like someone ticked off at you that's going to go, well, you're going to pay for that now. It's much more of a bigger picture of like things that will help and form and shape. I think we have to be sensitive here because some of you had not good relationship with your, with your father, with your parents maybe. And so you hear of a father's discipline and it may conjure up all sorts of things that are horrific and never should have happened. 
And one of the ways we know it shouldn't have happened is we compare earthly fathers with our heavenly father. We know something's not right here. Intuitively, we know something isn't right here when we know from our heavenly father, this is the way fathers care about their kids. This is the way they pour out their lives and sacrifice and love. So it may be that you have to rebuild a little bit of your understanding what a father is meant to be seen as in scripture because of some challenges with your earthly father. But do that work of rebuilding so that you can fully appreciate the discipline of our father because he loves you so much. If you know he loves you, you can receive even the correction when you do wrong. If you know he loves you, you may have to hang in there. I think that's what verse seven's talking about in some ways. But wait a minute, you're, you're not an illegitimate child. You have a home, you have a place. Your family, God loves you. You're not being singled out by someone. Have you ever had that happen? It's, it's not fun when you feel like just someone, for whatever reason, a coworker, a boss, a manager, a coach, a teacher, just has it out for you. They just don't like you. That's no fun to deal with. And that is completely not what God is doing when he's disciplining. He didn't just wake up and go, I just don't care for you that much. So you're going to have a hard time And these other people, I'm not going to be so hard on them. I just don't like you. I don't like what you're all about. There's something different. And I want to make sure we hear that. Because an outlet of God's grace means that we have a relationship with the Father. We have connection. God loves you. And he corrects you. And he trains and shapes. We have a cloud of witnesses. We're looking to Jesus. We're being treated as children of God our Father. But there's even another layer of this discipline. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we have had, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. So there's a comparison made, right? Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Kind of take note of that word live at the end of verse 9. For those earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Ah, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Another outlet of God's grace, another outlet of help is just recognizing that discipline is for our good. God's discipline is for our good. It's surely helpful when we recognize that God's discipline isn't something that lacks a purpose, but it's for our good. I can't help when I hear that to think back to times I faced, like, let's call it correction or punishment uh, growing up. And of course, one line that I always heard was, this is going to hurt me more than it. And I never believed that. Like, I'm still not so settled that that, like, really hurt them more than. All that being set aside, often parents would say this, like, this is for your good. I'm taking away this privilege for your good. And even though it never felt like that, years later, you do realize the intent of your parents. If you assume the best about their motives, what we can do is assume the best about God for sure. So verse nine, he says, any discipline you endure is so that you will live. Like that word life, I mean, that's blessings, that's eternal life, that's abundant life, life to the fullest. Even verse 10, it's so that this would be for your good from his perspective, not necessarily ours but from his. Verse 10, it's so that like the discipline won't mean that we can share in his holiness the things that set God apart 
as God. We have a share in that. And even in verse 11, to bring about peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's peace, there's a wholeness, like the the Hebrew word peace is shalom. It's like a wholeness of life, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's hard to think of two words in the Bible that have more importance than peace and righteousness. I mean, equally important, yes, but I mean, those are critical words, right? Peace and righteousness. God's standard of right. All this is like what's being produced in your life. And man, a lot of things become more bearable and tolerable when you see a purpose. Or just when you know that the person who is holding so many things in your life has a purpose. You can live with a lot of short pain. Even like in physical therapy, you can live with a lot of short-term pain. When you notice, when you're confident there's a long-term benefit. I mean, some of this is why I just intellectually and emotionally, it just is never satisfying. It, I don't think it ever could be satisfying to go the, the kind of the atheist path. Because I go, like, really? There's no purpose, no good? We're just matter cells? And it's just all, like, random? Like, every third full moon, something bad happens to you, and then you, I mean, is that the way it really, it just is just the way it is? How different it is, how, how much more convincing it is that even the most painful things come through a good father's hand who knows how to work things out. And I'm not saying we always understand it in like the front windshield. A lot of the way we understand God's purpose is in the rearview mirror. We see, oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, that, okay, okay. And frankly, there may be times where we just never even see it. This side of heaven, I, I mean, I do wonder, but I know this, God doesn't do random. He doesn't do random. And you may never know the purpose. And you and I may never like, we may never see it quite clearly, but God is at work. He is at work for our good, not to destroy us, but to make us more and more like Jesus. And most days, that actually like settles me down. But frankly, even on the days it doesn't settle me down, God doesn't change. He's still for my good and still will meet me when I'm not settled down. There's one more outlet, and we'll just allude to it and then close our time here. But verse 12 says this, like, therefore we can, it's a command here, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Think of words I gave like this outlet would be being intentionally for each other is another outlet. And the reason why I say that I mean, there's some references here in Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4. And it's like, you know, tighten your grip on things. Like, let's, if your knees are weak, like, you've got to get strong. If your hands seem to be falling, like, let's raise those so that you're ready to, ready to go after it, ready to get after it. But the fact is, this is said not just to an individual, but a community. All the pronouns there are plural. So it's kind of assuming community-wise, all of us, we are going to struggle at some time. And so it isn't just like you individually strengthen your hands. It's collectively we have a responsibility to be intentional for each other. That there is danger out there for everybody and the community has to hang in there so that the weakest members who feel like I am just broken and lame begin to feel the restoration from other believers coming alongside saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. We're in this. I'm praying for you. I'm walking with you. 
These are marching orders. We're looking, we're looking, not just, what did I get out of church? But we're looking like, where are the weary? Where is the person who can't really walk? Like, who's the person that's lost their way? Who's the person that needs healing and restoration? Which means, if you're a believer, you were never meant to be on an island just having to look out for yourself. God loves you too much to leave you in that spot. So you know what he does? He gives us all marching orders and say, and says to us, like, look for the others and help them, lift them up. We have a race set before us. The timing of this passage with this past week in our family's life is not lost on me because I think I went to three track meets and saw my kids run in 10 races this week. So like, let us run the race. And so all sorts of analogies that I won't, I won't bore you with till 2 p.m. today. A lot of those do come to mind, though. I'm reminded how much, like, like running's hard. And yet there's a crowd cheering you on, even as you feel so exposed, because, like, there you are in the track. And, like, there's no teammates to hide. Like, you're out there. But there's the crowd, and there's friends, and there's family cheering you on. So many people wanting you to succeed. So there's so many analogies there. There's so many analogies of, like, you have to train hard, and there's lots of discipline and lots of pain. There's some analogies of like sometimes, sometimes the win is not first, second, or third. Sometimes the wind's just crossing the finish line and you did it. You hung in there and you didn't quit. And also I think the motivation to keep running comes from a lot of different places. I mean, I gave you five outlets. There are probably 25 more of God's grace and help to you. But I think sometimes when you're running and in the, you're on that track and you just want to quit, you just want to be done. And maybe it is that voice cheering you on and maybe that's an outlet to like, I'm going to find another gear. Or maybe there's a focus of a finish line or maybe there's a, another person that like, they're just a foot in front of you pushing you on to make sure you don't quit too early. Maybe it's the discipline. Maybe it's the training. Maybe you don't even know where it comes from. But something like clicks into gear and you finish the race. What I do know is this particular race, while you are called to run it, what I also know about this race, spiritually speaking, is that it is not first and only about you. Your Heavenly Father, if He rescued you from the domain of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light with His Son, Jesus, is committed to you finishing. And regardless of how weak you feel, regardless of where your mind is or how distracted you feel, there's an opportunity today to do this, to look to Jesus, which is why I think it's so appropriate for us to close our time singing. Lord, fix my, keep my eyes fixed on Christ. Lord, help us do that. Give grace to those who are struggling. May we be a body of believers that runs and runs our race with endurance. Help us be faithful. And I pray that the different outlets that you provided today, that some may be beneficial, whether it's on Monday or Tuesday or wherever it is, maybe a month from now, the grace that you provided in Hebrews 12 will be real to us. We ask this help in Jesus' name. Amen.